everyone. Welcome to the Women Wired for Wellness podcast presented by Holistic Icon. I'm your host, Dr. Nisha Chalam. You may be thinking, does the world need yet another podcast? As a physician in practice, I have been intrigued by the fact that despite our education, despite the abundance of information and advancements in a country like ours, women struggle for decades with troubling symptoms to seek help, or even when they seek help, suffer for years before they can get a resolution. It is my obsession to understand one, this culture. Number two, understand how we can create health and move away from this preoccupation of diagnosing and managing disease. Therefore, one of my passions is to teach both my patients and people who come in contact with us as it helps me empower myself and them with the knowledge that our health is probably the one asset we all can control. This control begins with knowing all that has been known about it. It is not simply about knowing a disease and considering the right medications, which has been presented today as our only option, as it certainly might be the only option if we choose to do nothing different. But to truly live fulfilling lives, we need to know how to tap into our innate nature to heal. When it comes to health, there is a finish line and there is a timeline to get to it. We help you get there with a different way of thinking. If this podcast has helped you or opened your eyes to a different path, please take time to leave a positive review. And if you felt it fell short somehow, let us know how we can improve it. Let's get on to today's podcast. Today on Women Wired for Wellness. There's a big difference, and it's important that you pointed that out because I feel like the term depression gets tossed around a lot out of context, and we need to stop that. If you're having a bad day, if you're sad because something happened that day, you're sad, you're not depressed. Yes. And it is life worth living for you. And if it is, what do you live for? A person who is truly depressed can't answer that question. When you tell them what are you truly living for, is your is your life worth living? They can't answer that question. Once I stopped like drinking Coke, I just I feel physically ill when I drink Coke now. And now onto the introduction of the podcast. It has been said that nothing in the world can torment you as much as your thoughts. For a 33-year-old psychiatrist and medical journalist, Yalda Safai. This internal battle is something that is all too familiar. As someone with high-functioning depression, she knows what it is to be at war with your mind. Hi, I'm Dr. Chellum, the host of Women Wide for Wellness. Welcome to today's talk. High-functioning depression is a type of mental illness where sufferers experience some symptoms of depression. However, they can live their lives in a way that their condition is not readily apparent. For the most part, they can work, maintain their households, manage their interpersonal relationships, and seemingly enjoy their lives to some degree. Unlike the traditional major depressive disorder, whose symptoms can recede in 6 to 12 months and is easier to treat, the high-functioning depressive person has low-grade depressive symptoms that can last for years. Dr. Safai had experienced this and is on a mission to bring awareness to this particular condition. Most of the folks who experience this do not seem to have a depressed demeanor. In other words, they look like they're able to function normally. Their feelings get trivialized. So seeking help for 
this condition can take a very long time. And when they do resolve it, it also takes much longer than classic depression. For those of you who have seen a classically depressed person, you see them as someone who is unable to get out of bed. They look sad. They have low energy. They cannot hold a job. They sleep a lot. They look tired and have obviously no pleasure in their lives. Typically, this is the person who seeks help or whose family brings them in for help. They answer in the positive to these two screening questions. In the last two weeks, have you experienced hopelessness? And the answer would be yes. In the last two weeks, have you felt you would be better off dead than alive? And the answer is yes again. This person will get diagnosed and treated and usually can feel better with the treatment. A high-functioning depressive person gets diagnosed very slowly and the treatment is also very difficult. We also discuss how depression can be difficult to treat in general because the whole definition of depression is theoretical. The monoamine oxidase theory is used to define depression and this has not been proven by science, hence the confusion around depression. Monoamines in our brain are serotonin, dopamine, and epinephrine. And our theory is that depressed folks have less of these monoamines. However, this has not been proven, but what we know is most folks who experience classic depression do feel better when given drugs that can potentially increase the concentration of these monoamines in the brain. We also know that 30%, that is 3 out of 10, of these folks do not see a response and we don't have an explanation as to why. So in a condition like high-functioning depression, which has still not made it to the diagnostic codes in psychiatry, we need to have an awareness and validate so many folks who experience this but are being told to coat and uncoat, snap out of it, when what they need is support and help. Let's therefore delve into this conversation with Dr. Safai, who will walk us through the symptoms and the problem and the solution to this mostly unrecognized condition. So welcome, Dr. Safai. Thank you so much for joining Women Wired for Wellness. I'm really excited. I'm really excited about this conversation because I think it's a very, very much needed topic to talk about, uh, particularly in the last, this is going to be year three for most of us, which I think is a form of traumatic experience for most people. And the topic that you're going to talk about is very interesting, unique, and I haven't heard that before, which is the high functioning depression. But before we get into it, can you give us an idea of why uh, you got into medicine? Why particularly psychiatry? And then we'll get a little, delve a little deeper into the high functioning depression. Sure, of course. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. I'm Yalda Safai. I'm a psychiatrist based in multiple different states, so nowhere, nowhere in particular. And I'm here today to talk to you guys about high functioning depression. And I got into this topic because of a few different reasons. Um, first of all, you wanted me to say why I got into medicine yeah. and psychiatry. Well, I saw, yeah, I saw a big need for it. The way the world was going when I was in medical school, I just 
looked at the way the world was going, we are slowly becoming more and more acceptance of mental illness, of seeking help for mental illness. And I saw a tremendous need for it in the future. And I also saw that there's an extreme shortage of psychiatrists. And I, I realized that myself, when I, as a medical student, was looking for a psychiatrist, it was almost impossible to find one with time. <laughs> So I'm like, okay, this is a field that there's going to be an extreme need for. So I want to contribute to it. I want to be a part of it. And I want to be in the part of the movement where I think the movement is going from mental illness being stigmatized to mental illness being completely accepted. That's the movement. And I want to be a part of it. So that's why I got into psychiatry. I'm going to break the video here to help us understand why there is a stigma attached to mental health and why, despite our education, there is still more stigma in some fields than others. For instance, in the field of medicine, we hold human beings, particularly physicians, to an unreasonable expectation of perfect mental health. No doctor should suffer from mental illness or be on a medication and for sure not have a substance abuse problem as it will impact their career in the long run. So you can see in some walks of life, depression and the treatment of depression it's not easy to talk about and sometimes can be a huge problem to access. Let's delve a little deeper into the stigma of mental health so we can better learn together on how to think differently. We can get there with collective awareness. Here is why depression or mental illness stigmatized. It is because of the theory of the evolution of mind as explained by a neurologist and a psychologist who developed this psychosocial structure and explains our various personalities. They are Sigmund Freud and Eric Erickson. They defined eight stages of this psychosocial development. I'm going to go over a few of them that are relevant to this topic, but this is what we learned in medical school about these two theories. We have a subconscious mind that determines how we react to a situation. Now, the subconscious mind has a few layers. The first layer is called the conscious layer. It is the awareness of the present. Now, the past experiences and past emotions can be somewhat brought to the present. And this is brought in by the pre-conscious layer. So how we react to a situation is based on a previous remote experience. And this is why we all reacted differently to the pandemic. Some folks went into a very deep depression as they thrived naturally on a social life. Others went from a survival mode of living to a thriving mode because they found lost time, discovered themselves and evolved to become the best version of who they had always wanted to be. The pre-conscious layer may have a role, but an even better role in our current way of behavior and how we present ourselves to the rest of the world is coming from the unconscious layer. This deeper layer of our mind called the unconscious layer cannot be brought up to our level of consciousness. The deeper conscious mind has no concept of past, present, and future. It will be the one that creates your fear, the insecurity, the depression, and this is the layer that needs to be tapped into during therapy and processed. So in other words, the experiences that we thought, whether it be unpleasant experience or hurtful experience, which we thought we had buried alive, and it doesn't affect me anymore, is actually alive and ticking and shaping your present and 
probably your future. This is why even though we make choices and think we have complete autonomy of these choices, they all derive from the deep unconscious experiences that are alive and kicking and feeding into your thoughts, actions and feelings. Just a quick reminder as we continue, hit the subscribe button and share this link with anyone who you believe will benefit from it. And those of you listening to the podcast, make sure you subscribe and like our podcast and share this with someone who you believe will benefit from it. Back to our conversation. And the reason I am choosing to speak about high functioning depression with you all is that in my own practice, I'm seeing so many, so many, I mean, I I can't even tell you like 80% of my patients. I, I work with patients who are highly successful, they're high functioning, they're, they have careers, they've, you know, they're highly educated. And I've been seeing a trend in all of them. And the trend was they're surviving life so to speak. They're good at their jobs, they go to their jobs, they're highly successful, yet it's what I like to say not thriving. They're secretly battling depression, but it's not the in-your-face obvious depression that we think about. When we think about depression, we usually think about the person who's in bed crying, the person who can't get out of bed, the person who's hospitalized after a suicide attempt. And that's the image that's ingrained in our brains. And the problem is we can't really understand something we can't see with high functioning individuals they go to work every day they have a smile on their faces they go out to drinks or dinner with friends they go to parties so we can't see that they're depressed therefore we don't believe it even if a person that i'm describing right now high functioning successful social came out to you and said listen i'm battling depression most people's reaction would be you know what you you seem like you're doing great like you seem like you're happy all the time oh snap out of it oh you're fine but that's the problem you can be depressed and high functioning at the same time you can hold down the a job be highly successful at your job and still be battling depression so when we think about and perfect examples of this are like Kate Spade of Anthony Bourdain, Robin Williams. What do these people have in common? They were highly successful to the world. They seem like they were on top of the world. Yeah. To everybody else, it seems like what else could you want in life? Wealth, success, popularity, fame. All three of them died of suicide. So the point I'm trying to make here is that depression is not always so obvious. And my message is really to people who are high functioning, who have noticed these signs and symptoms in themselves. They, they seem like they're struggling. They feel like they're struggling, but they're taught to believe that they should just be stronger. They're thought to believe, oh, just get over it, be grateful. Or they're thought to believe that since they're functioning and they go to work every day and they're like good at, good at school, that means they can't have depression. And that's not true. What so, I'm seeing more and more now, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, I just wanted to ask, so just so that I understand, because this is something that I'm thinking of all the people I um, work with or I've experienced, where there's daily stresses in life. We all mm-hmm. feel some days we're not as successful. We feel like we've not accomplished enough. You know, that negative feeling, the underlying background negative feeling is there for most of us. Would is Do these people experience this like, at a 10 times higher than normal? Is it constant? What is so different about them internally than a person who's just dealing with daily stresses 
and functioning because when somebody is enjoying their work, interacting well with their family, successful, like you said, with Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain and having all these successful businesses, how do you, uh, do they speak in a certain way or give you some clues or is it just something that they experience internally? Okay, to answer your first question, um, how do you tell the difference between daily stressors and depression? Mm -hmm. You know, if you believe that depression is a biological illness, do you believe that? There's a a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people do. Uh, yeah, I somehow feel that's a very small percentage is a huge part of it is interaction of so many things. And of course it is. It's always the nature versus nurture debate, yeah. right? Which yeah. one is it? Is it the environment? Is it our genes? And really, science has come up with no good answer about this. Exactly. It's, as far as we know, it's both. My hesitancy to answer the question, does depression exist, comes from my own life experience and also from reading history and looking at different parts of the world. One documentary which I would encourage all of you listening to this podcast to see is The Heart of Nuba. This is a small African nation that is ravaged by war by its own government. Citizens of this country do not have a guarantee of life. They live one day at a time, but not in fear, but in sheer joy and with connection with one another. They celebrate every peaceful day as a gift. They also do not have chronic diseases. Growing up in India, I recall that most folks lived in a community. If you had a problem, it got solved by the community, which on the flip side can also cause many of your problems. The point I struggle with is why is depression seen in the most developed nations and the most electronically connected nations? Could it be that in places where the basic needs are not necessarily easy to fulfill? That is, when your country is waging a war, or if you're a part of a tribe or a community, depression is rarely seen. So is our depression a symptom of comfort crisis? That is, we have all of our basic needs. We do not have to fight for survival. We are isolated in this industrialized, modern, convenient life of ours. And that may be the reason why we struggle with mood disorders. I'm not sure I have the answer, but it is a question that all of us have to ponder. A study by Kenneth Kendler called Rearing Environment and the Risk for Major Depression by Environment is a good place to start to see if this mood disorder can be changed by nurture. They studied kids that were adopted out. The biological parents had mental illness, but the adoptive parents were carefully chosen to be well-adjusted with a good nurturing and safe environment for the child. Given this change in environment, even though the siblings were genetically identical, the incidence of depression was greater when you lived in your biological household where one parent having major depressive disorder was present. They also found in other studies, if we identified such an environment for a child, what were the interventions that could help prevent the incidence of major depression in the child as it grows? Here is the bottom line. You may not have been lucky to be born in the best environment for a happy outlook, but could you earn it a different way? Let's get back to Dr. Yalda's thoughts on this. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you think of um, depression as 
a part of it is a physical illness. You cannot cure a physical illness without treatment. The right. other part, your outlook in life, your daily struggles can be fixed through therapy. They can be fixed through changing your perspective on things. Mm -hmm. For example, we all have stressors in our lives, right? Yes. Like that's something you cannot avoid. Life is stressful. But learning good coping skills to deal with those stressors can keep you from getting actually depressed. Does that make sense? Yeah. A lot of people have good coping skills. Good coping a lot skills. Of people, Got it. Mm -hmm. Innately. But others need a little bit more work and that's okay. But that is not depression. Depression is a lot deeper than that. It's when you, for example, someone who's just going through daily struggles mm -hmm. might not feel physically exhausted all the time. Yeah. The first sign of depression that I see in my patients is all the time is like, I'm physically exhausted. I go through work, I get through the motions throughout the day, I force myself to go out, I force myself to work, but I'm physically exhausted. Mm -hmm. And that's no way to live your life. That is the one of the first signs of depression. Second is hopelessness. A, a person who's going through normal struggles and stressors in life doesn't necessarily feel hopeless, doesn't feel like their life is pointless or worthless. A person who's truly depressed does. And I'm sure I ask, we ask this screening question all the time yeah. of our patients. And the, the question is, is life worth living for you? And if it is, what do you live for? A person who is truly depressed can't answer that question. When wow. you tell them, what are you truly living for? Is your, is your life worth living? They can't answer that question. But a person who's just stressed out could say, my children, I live for my children. I live for my husband. I live for, I love doing this. I love doing that. I'm just like having a hard time right now. So there's a big difference between them. Got it. One other major difference that I should say between the two is a term we call anhedonia in psychiatry mm -hmm. um, means inability to feel pleasure. A, that's one of the hallmarks of depression. A person mm -hmm. who is truly depressed cannot find any joy in anything. For example, eating is a form of pleasure for everybody, yeah. right? If it wasn't, we wouldn't have all these problems, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, eating is a form of uh, pleasure. A person who's stressed out or going through a hard time might still enjoy having a nice meal or having a glass of wine or they, they take pleasure in the things they used to. But a person who's depressed cannot feel any pleasure from anything. I don't think people comprehend how scary that is to feel absolutely no pleasure from anything. No pleasure about and no it. purpose. I mean, no purpose, no pleasure. Yeah, that's a dark that place. Yes, it is a very dark place. Yeah. And that is depression. So Not. there's a big difference. And it's important that you pointed that out because I feel like the term depression gets tossed around a lot out of context. And we need to stop that. If you're having a bad day, if you're sad because something happened that day, you're sad. You're not depressed. Yes. There's a big difference between the two. And I think it's really for a person who's truly depressed when they when they see that that term getting tossed around, it's a little bit of an insult because depression is an illness. Yeah. No, I, I, it was very important to differentiate that because you see kids now say, oh, I'm so depressed. I didn't get into this. You know, it's right. just a disappointment. It could be you're feeling sad. You didn't get what you wanted, but that doesn't mean depression. Depression happens from my understanding with no specific stimuli or stresses. It's just an right. innate sense of doom exactly. with, like you said, no purpose and no pleasure. Exactly. There is a lot to unpack in this segment, whether it be our ability to voice our own feelings or our ability to recognize and openly speak to our loved ones about their feelings. 
What we need to establish in our, in our minds is whether depression is an attitude or a physical illness. For those of us struggling with depression and those struggling with stress, we have to make this distinction. One of these needs treatment and support and the other needs just support. So let's pick apart the very first symptom and the most important or core symptom of depression and that's called anhedonia. If we call depression a physical illness, the question we ask is, is there a physical change? And the answer is, yes, there is. What changes do we see? Since we believe depression is a function of the anatomical structure of our body called the brain, we should hope to see a change in the brain. And we do see changes in the structure and function of certain parts of the brain in depression. The word you want to remember is amygdala. Amygdala means almond. Almond shape is the bunch of neurons that cluster in the brain, deep down in the brain, and we have it in both halves of our brain. The amygdala is a site of pleasure, fear, and most emotions of feelings stem in this area. We have dopamine, a chemical from the nerve ending, therefore it's called a neurotransmitter, that is released that helps or gives us the feeling of pleasure. There are other chemicals in the brain or the other neurotransmitters that are serotonin, glutamate, acetylcholine, and cholecystokinin. As you will learn, we can control the release and function of the structures of the neurons in the amygdala and its neighboring neurons by controlling another part of our body that has similar chemical structure, and that's our gut. So this feeling of exhaustion and anhedonia or the loss of pleasure is not something that you can snap out of or work yourself out of it. It may need some form of intervention and this can include medications, therapy and support. True depression will not respond easily to cognitive behavioral therapy but may need medications. As we note, it will have to change the neurotransmitters. It may start up initially as an acute event like a loss but the recurring events of depression or bouts of depression can occur without an inciting event. Depression is deeper. It's also deeper in that you are unable to connect with your purpose. So this purpose or drive in life cannot be lost. Once it's lost, we can spiral down into that dark space called depression. Exhaustion is something where you come back from work and all you want to do is just lay in the sofa and Netflix or get Uber Eats and order some foods. There is no bandwidth to do anything else. This is different from being tired because you've been working 20 hours a day for six days a week to finish a project. That truly is exhaustion. If you feel you do not know why you're doing this or what is the purpose of your life? For example, let's take Kate Spade. I do not know her nor am I pretending to know anything about her. All I know is she was a brand name and I know my daughter loved Kate Spade bags. People loved her products. She had a legacy but in her mind, whatever she was going through, she felt it was pointless. That is the disease and that is not normal.
We begin to see changes in the moods of kids earlier and earlier these days. And once again, can this be a symptom of our changing society that is highly connected yet disconnected? We will delve into what we should do to recognize a condition called dysthymia, which may be apparent in children and can be addressed very early. So back to Dr. Yalda as we delve into how to start this conversation and how to be aware of what is happening to our loved ones. And you pointed out children, and I think it's really important to um, mention something here. I don't think we as society have developed the emotional vocabulary to fully express what we feel. We're not teaching this to our children. We haven't learned it ourselves. So if we do start seeing the signs and symptoms of depression, sometimes we're not even able to, you know, verbalize what we're feeling because we just haven't been taught it. And it's nobody's fault. The problem, well, uh, it's nobody's fault because mental illness was so stigmatized and thought of as a weakness that we never developed the the vocabulary to express things that are related to our mind and our our brain. So it's really important that we teach the next generation to be better. If they're feeling a certain way, we have to encourage them to speak how they feel. This is really important. And if they do, it's going it, to honestly, it's going to solve a lot of problems. I, we're seeing more and more kids with depression, more and more kids with something called dysthymia. It's not full blown depression. It just means like a constant low. Yes. It's, you don't meet criteria for like they don't they're not helpless and hopeless. Like I told you, they, they still feel pleasure when they run around the playground, but they're dysthymic and low all the time. If we had, and they go through life like that, and they grow up like that, and the parents, you know, don't catch it, or even if they do, they brush it under the rug, or they don't teach the kids to, you know, verbalize what they're feeling. And I think it's 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 really important, especially to mothers out there, to encourage your kids to verbalize how they feel. How would those kids, because we, I know we're going down and different rabbit hole but just for a moment how does a dysthymia because they do feel a little pleasure but you it's but it's not normal it's not the normal um uh, whatever is considered normal like the child is not necessarily at their optimal health and well-being and the potential to thrive might be a little stunted with that how does a mother identify or a parent identify that their child might be dysthymic. So, so, so uh, like I said, a lot of times because we're still we're still kind of caught in that whole oh mental illness is a stigma thing. We see signs and symptoms here or there, but we brush it under the rug. A mother always knows when their kid is not acting the way they used to. A mother yeah. always knows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if they seem like so, something is off encourage questions. I'm encouraging questions. Sit down with your kid. And like, like I was saying, encourage verbalizing your emotions and what you're thinking and what you're feeling. This is a hard exercise. It's mm-hmm. not easy to sit down with your, with your kid and say, tell me exactly what you're thinking right now. We're in this moment. What's wrong? What are you thinking right now? Most people don't take the time and I shouldn't even blame them because they're uncomfortable with it. It's an uncomfortable thing to do. We're not, we're not it's good at to hear your kids say exactly. that, that they are depressed. Number one, number two, I don't know uh, the cultural background for me, at least depression is not even like, why would you be depressed? You got a home, you got food, you, you got everything that you want. Why would you be depressed? So w- there's a lot of disconnect between what, 
true depression is, which is a, it's a physiological change. It's truly something that's happening inside your body rather than just something that you want to experience or this is how you want to be. I think that's the other reason why it's very difficult to talk about it too. Very difficult to hear your child say something that. Um, it's exactly. so negative. And you meant, yeah, exactly. And you mentioned culture. That's a whole other, whole other, <laughs> I know. Entire other day, but that is also a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, because culturally, we're, we're made to believe a lot of cultures, even American culture. Let's, let, oh, let's yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. We're made to believe mental illness is a weakness. We have never really tended to that part of our, our well-being, a part of our life. Yes. We, we yeah. always brush it on the rug. We always say, you know, be tougher, be more grateful. Oh, the whole be more grateful thing I've heard my entire life. <laughs> Every time something goes wrong, be grateful, be grateful. It's not that simple. So I think we're just as a society still not there. Um, but we need to tend to our mental illness from a very young age. And this is going to take time, especially with cultures that are more closed off and and believe believe more that mental illness is a weakness. I mean, it's going to take a, a while, but one step at a time. And the yes. whole my whole point is to raise awareness. That's all. Right. I will stop here to make sure we get this point across. What is dysthymia? Literally, it means being in a bad mood. And do you know anyone who is in a bad mood all of the time? Dysthymia contributes to three percent. Of depression. What is the condition itself? It's just a chronically depressed state. It can present with overeating or undereating. It can present with a constant sense of sleepiness, which is hypersomnia, or lack of sleep, which is insomnia. There can be a low energy state despite a high caloric intake. There's a sense of low self-esteem and poor decision-making skills, and to some degree, hopelessness. So this sounds a lot like depression, only that it is more chronic and there is no acute loss of functional capacity. This is how some people live the rest of their lives. There are biochemical changes that seem to be associated with this dysfunction, which presents itself as a decreased monoamine state like low serotonin and dopamine and GABA. But also there is a dysfunction of the stress hormone brain connection, otherwise called the adrenal hypothalamic pituitary axis. These folks you'll find have poor coping skills under normal stressors of life. And also there's the presence of chronic inflammation. In the psychiatry manual of diagnosis called the DSM-5, dysthymia was clubbed with depression. So it's a chronic state of depression and it's not as severe as an acute major depressive episode. The treatment still continues to be cognitive and behavioral therapy. In fact, these folks may benefit from long-term medications, unlike acute depression, where there may be complete resolution. Dysthymia, unfortunately, can be long-lasting. The other risk to keep in mind, children who have close family members with severe depression tend to have more dysthymic conditions. We also spoke a little about culture. Culturally, we can present with depression differently. It has been shown in studies in certain cultures, for example, the African-American background or Hispanic origin, depression presents itself as pain. These folks struggling with depression may never talk about their feelings or mood, but will be chronically in pain. This is called somatization. And it is not that they are making up the pain, but the brain messaging is such that they experience pain over sadness. And this pain will prevent them from living a normal life. And that is a more acceptable way of dealing or coping with depression. So this is just 
another something we all need to be aware of in recognizing different presentations of depression. So when someone comes to you, they're high functioning, obviously they found you a psychiatrist saying, you know, this is the person I need to meet. What do you think tips them off? Because it looks like for decades, they can go like this functioning. Um, Either it ends with a fatality like we see in our public figures, or they find someone like you. What is the tipping point? What makes them do that most of the time? What makes them see me? Mm -hmm. It's usually a friend or family member that encourages them or mm. they had one too many bad days at work and the boss is like something's going on you got you got to seek help i see that a lot actually they're still functional they're still going to work but they have one too many off days and um work pushes them to see somebody usually i get those people or i get people who feel like they are like i said not thriving in life and feel like they they're not reaching their potential because they're always exhausted because they're always pessimistic because they always feel like everything's pointless um that's how they come to me and i think the important thing is like i said since most people when they think of depression they think about the person who's crying in bed um it's it takes a lot longer for the people who are high functioning to recognize they need help Mm. A lot yeah. longer, sometimes years, they go untreated. Whereas someone who's in bed crying all the time, usually a family member forces them into a treatment or forces them into yes. a psychiatric facility, right? Um, but the person who's functioning, I sometimes they go years without treatment. And that's what we want to prevent. Like without, I want, I'm trying to raise awareness so people can recognize the signs and symptoms in themselves to seek help earlier not wait so long. So basically what I'm hearing you say is if you're exhausted at the end of the day, you feel life is pointless deep down inside, despite the fact that you're doing everything that life requires you to do, but you're struggling. I I don't know, do these people struggle with holding relationships or holding jobs or they just function, but, and they feel they, they have the potential to be much better than what they are doing. And can seem to have the motivation to get there. What other signs and symptoms are we to seek within ourselves and to seek within a loved one? A lot of people tell me they feel like actors. They're just doing the motions of life, acting. Yes, acting through every aspect of their life, whether it's at work, it's through relationships and you know, family life, they feel like they're acting all the time. And can you imagine how exhausting it must be to act 24 yeah, seven? Can you not just to be yourself. Yeah, Not to be yourself? Yeah. And that's exhausting. That's why you're mentally drained. On top of that, like I mentioned, helplessness and hopelessness and pointlessness to feel like your life is pointless is, is a big red flag. Most people, most healthy people don't, you know, don't, don't feel, don't think like that, that their life is not worth living, that their life is pointless. If you feel helpless, hopeless, and and feel like your life is pointless, that's a big red flag. On top of that, I mentioned anhedonia, inability to to have feel any pleasure. Mm-hmm. These people still go out to dinner with their friends. They still go on vacations. They still they still do everything, but they're not getting any pleasure from it. And if you've had anhedonia, you know what I'm talking about. It's not something you can miss. If you ever start feeling anhedonic, it is a terrifying feeling. And um, since nobody really talks about this, I mean, have you heard the term anhedonia before? Yeah. Had you? Yeah, you have. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A lot of people haven't. And when they get that feeling, they're confused for a long time. They're like, what is this? Why can't I enjoy this meal? Why can't I enjoy this movie? I used to. I used to like doing this. Why Why am I not getting the same pleasure for it anymore? Because there's a lack of mental health 
literacy, people take the, it takes them so much longer to figure out something's wrong. Something biologically is wrong. I need to seek help. And I mentioned mental health literacy because that's what we need. We're mm. lacking mental health literacy. We're lacking the knowledge to identify these, these things in ourselves. So um, that's why these people go years untreated before they're like, I can't take this anymore. I can't act anymore. I, I need help. Or, or unfortunately, people like Kate Spade or Anthony Bourdain, they don't seek help. They're like, I just can't live like this anymore. And, and they decide to end it, unfortunately. So we want to, as a, as a psychiatrist, I want to raise mental health literacy. So people are aware or more knowledgeable about the different mental illnesses and how they can affect them. And depression and anxiety are the most common mental illnesses. It affects everybody. There is no race or religion or class of people or age range, nothing. When it comes to depression and anxiety, we are all equals. It's like COVID. In the face yeah. of COVID, we were all equals. We all yeah. get sick. It doesn't matter like who you are or how much money you have. So it's the same with depression and anxiety. It affects everybody. So it's yeah. important that we educate from a very young age our children, our even adults, Ad to recognize adolescents. Yep, adolescents. Yeah, to recognize these things in themselves and seek help when necessary. Now, when I say seek help, sometimes it's professional help. Most of the time, it's professional help. Seek, you know, look mm -hmm. for a therapist, look for a psychiatrist. Yeah, going on medications is okay. Trust me, it is okay. A lot of people are so hesitant about taking antidepressants. They're so hesitant because yeah. they think there's something wrong. There must be something wrong with me. I'm taking psychiatric medications. No normal person doesn't do that. Oh, like it's, you know, it's the end of the world. That shouldn't be the perception we have of this. If you had high blood pressure, what would you do? Yeah, I know. It's it's exactly like any other chronic medical illness. Exactly. You, you take a pill you protect for it. protect your body. Yeah, exactly. If you have high cholesterol, if you have cancer, what do you do? You go through chemotherapy. Why is none of those a big deal for anybody? But taking an antidepressant or taking a medication to stabilize mood or help with anxiety. Why is that such a big deal for people? That's what we're trying to fix. That, that, that stigma we're trying to get rid of. And we're on that track, but we have a ways to go still. Yeah. So let's say if somebody identifies, yes, I can't live like this. I'm acting. I have no pleasure in life. My my life feels purposeless. And for whatever reasons, they get pushed to see a professional like you. What are the things that they can do on their own besides medication? Medications have to come from right. a professional, but what can right. they do to shift how they feel? Because, you know, like we discussed no one really knows what depression is from. In fact, the whole theory of depression is still a theory. Right. It's not something that has been proven one way or the other. We just, we just know medications do work for at least a 70% of the patient, but there is a small sect, 30% still don't get any help. What are the things that they can do that will help them both physiologically or biologically and also make their medicines work better for them? So the first one I'm going to mention, you guys are probably not going to like because you've heard it over and over again, yet you still don't make it to the gym. You still don't exercise. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's honestly oh, how we so, hate it, right? <laughs> we hate it. And if, you know, if exercising is hard for you, I get it. You don't have to go to the gym and lift weights. You don't have to do that. Research has shown even 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise is enough to boost your mood. If you do 20 minutes of a treadmill or a sprint walk in the morning, 
it sets the tone for the entire day. I promise yeah. you guys, try start smart with small attainable steps. Don't say tomorrow you're going to run a marathon. You're setting yourself up for failure. Start with tiny steps. Say, I'm going to run 20 minutes twice a week. I'm going to start with that and see how it changes my mood. I promise you it will change your mood. You're going to like it and you're going to run even more. But start with tiny steps. Then bump it up to three days a week. Then bump it up to four days a week. Then say, hey, whenever I'm feeling down, I'm just going to go out for a run. Yes. That also that also works wonders. It gets you out of that funk. So I know you guys don't like hearing this, but it, it you've heard it all your life. Exercise is so important. So important. Just start with 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise in the morning and see how it's going to change your life. Yes. It's going to change your mood. It's going to change your thoughts. It really is great. So like we said, medication is important. Therapy is important. But there's also little things you can do in your life. And the first one's exercise. The second one I want to get into, and it's, I don't know if you've heard about the gut-brain connection. Yes. There are serotonin receptors all over our gut. And serotonin is a molecule that when we give someone an antidepressant, we're trying to increase their serotonin levels. It's the feel-good hormone. Mm -hmm. It's uh, If you have low serotonin levels, you're, you're prone to depression. If you have higher ones, you're, you're healthier mentally. Anyways, um, there are serotonin receptors all over our guts, right? So what we eat has a direct influence on our mood. Yes. Try it. For one week, cut out sugar. Just refine sugar. And see how you feel. You're going to feel different. I myself cut out sugar a while ago. And every time I, I eat anything super sugary, I feel physically sick. I fall. And that, that's what refined sugars do to you. So my point is just be careful. There's a gut-brain connection. There's serotonin receptors all over your gut. Be mindful of what you put in your mouth. Because it will affect your mouth. That's yes. the second one. Um, the third thing I always mention is that a lot of times what brings us down and contributes to our depression is our thoughts, right? Um, our outlook in life, our thoughts, we have thousands of thoughts a day and they could really change our life. You know, there's that saying, watch your words, watch your thoughts, they become your, I, I don't know, I don't remember. But um, my point is your thoughts are very important. So I'm in Nicaragua right now, and I'm here with a bunch of other people who are working remotely. Every single morning, we go out at 6 a.m. on the beach and we meditate for five minutes. And mm -hmm. the point of this meditation is to be able to silence our brains and our thoughts. Now, the ultimate goal is that when you have pessimistic thoughts, to be able to block them out, right? That's what the practice of meditation teaches you. You start with two minutes, two minutes of trying to you know, block out any thoughts or be aware of them mostly. You, you see them coming in, you acknowledge them, you let them go. It's clearing your mind. So start the practice of meditation. Start with two minutes, three minutes, five minutes a morning. It is to train your brain to block out thoughts. So what that's going to give us, next time you have an unpleasant thought or next time you're having a really bad day and all these, these negative thoughts come, come into your brain, on the spot, you should be able to quickly close your eyes, block out the thoughts. And that's what the process of meditation does. It's it's basically like a mental workout. It's it's something you have to train. It's something you have to work on. Um, and it, it doesn't happen overnight. But the point of a practice of meditation is next time you're having a bad thought, you should be able to block it once you get mentally strong at it. Does that make sense? Oh, I just said, are you familiar with the practice of meditation? And do you use it? 
Yes, yes. I'm actually trained in meditation. So one of the things that uh, in yoga and uh, in the, um, you know, there are so many types of yoga, but the one that I learned, breath work really interrupts your thoughts. So sometimes when you have those negative thoughts, just like you said, most people, when I speak to them, they're afraid to meditate. They can never shut their thoughts down. So I just tell them, take a deep breath and focus on how deep you can go and get your diaphragm all the way up. And suddenly when they're focused on that, that thought gets interrupted. So the more you keep interrupting the thought, think of it. When you interrupt somebody, when they're speaking several times, they stop speaking after some time. The same thing happens with your thought. It's like you interrupt that thought and that thought fades away. So if you can meditate, breath work is another one that I've told my patients to use um, anytime they struggle with uh, negative thoughts. But we do have negative thoughts pretty much to protect us just when they become overwhelmingly the predominant voice, then they destroy us. And I think it's very important to understand that. And there's an interesting book I read about this. It's called Hardwiring Happiness. Uh-huh. And the brain talks about how we as humans, you know, we, we used to live in the jungle and we used to run from wild animals yeah. and danger. And so our brain is made to always think about worst case scenario. Yes. If back in the day we heard a sound in the bush the pessimist who ran wouldn't get eat, eaten by a tiger. The yeah. optimist who was like, oh, it's probably nothing, will get eaten by the tiger. So yeah. it's the pessimists who survived. <laughs> the ones that were overly cautious survived. Yeah. And so these genes have gone passed on, you know, generation to by generation. And our brain is hardwired in a way to always think about negatives and worst case scenario. Yeah. Because it's a survival tactic, right? Yeah. So we need to rewire our brain, basically, to not think like that. Because we're not in the bush anymore. We're not in immediate danger anymore. It's not always the end of the world world so we just need to work on making different neuronal connections and thinking differently you know about about things so I I think it's an interesting book hardwiring happiness nice yeah uh, thank you for letting us know that because I think that's very important is right now the way um the way we think a lot of times you know the negative thoughts I want people to know are normal but they being the predominant thoughts are not normal today I mean, the negative thoughts should help you weigh risks and benefit of any decision you make. However, if that's the only one and therefore you don't do anything or you don't experience any happiness, that's when it becomes really pathological. And the other thing about the mind is it's like somebody told me it's like a fog. You can never capture your mind or train your mind. It's really what you do. Like you said, practice what you practice makes progress. So if you're practicing anxiety, you're practicing having a response, a negative response for everything that you experience, then that becomes your way of life. And after some time, you don't know any better. And that's why these things, meditation or hanging around with people who inspire you rather than inspire you, doing work, surrounding yourself with more inspiring events and people move you away from it. And which is a good thing I felt about this high functioning depression is at least most of these folks are out. Unlike the classic depressed people who are kind of confined, at least they're out and they have a better opportunity to find a solution. It's really making sure that they be aware that they're struggling with this. I think 
um, right. that's what you're trying to do is yeah. be aware of it. Raise awareness. So they don't go three years, four years without seeking any help or doing anything to help themselves. It's to be able to recognize that you can be functional and depressed and to seek help when necessary. One more thing before we go on to another topic about the thoughts. I have this book here with me. Mm -hmm. I This is my Bible. <laughs> I... I literally tell every single one of my patients to read this. It's a very old book. It's about $6 on Amazon. It's by David oh, nice. Burns. It helps you recognize all those toxic um, thinking patterns mm. and how to overcome them. And it's really eye-opening because I do a lot of the things that this book mentions, but I was never aware of it. Um, so I think everybody, it's, there's a workbook attached to it. Um, if you want to change the, your pattern of thinking, and if you want to be able to recognize those toxic, maladaptive ways of thinking, this is a great book. So, so yeah. I've read this about four or five times myself, and I have it right next to me, and I tell all my patients. So it really is a good book. So just those of you who are just listening to this, Feeling Good by Dr. David Burns is the book she's holding. Yeah. And so if there's if you can get a copy of feeling good um, and use it as your support to get start your journey towards actually feeling good. Yes. It's about $7 on Amazon. So, and yes. I, I promise you we're going to read it over and over again. So I wonder if <laughs> it's on them. audible. Do you know if it's on audible for us to listen to? I, it? Haven't, I haven't taken a look because there's some like workbooks in there that I like to like write on. Oh, that's right. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I haven't taken a look in it. But Usually with Audible, they'll give you a PDF. If they have a workbook with the book, they'll give you a PDF that you can download and do stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that's uh, having more tools. And I think we're in this world, the so-called social isolation is truly a physical isolation, not a social isolation. It has really shrunk our worlds and where that connection True connection is also getting uh, disrupted. Uh, the number of people who've lost their parents because, and their parents died alone in the hospital. These are all true tragedies that we have seen in the last three years. And somebody who's already struggling like this um, probably needs that extra help and having these tools would really help them. So yes. I, I know what you said, um, initially you said, um, dancing is very important. Um, you know, quietening your mind is also very important. The food that you eat, removal of sugar, which probably is going to be the hardest. Are there any tips and tricks on how you would remove sugar? Because I think that's one thing that I find most of my patients struggle with. One of the things I tell them, and you can you can build up on that, is I tell them the time you lose the battle is when that substance gets into your shopping cart, not when it's in your house and you're trying to resist the temptation. So I ask them to go shopping when they're full, like after they've had a meal, right. so they oh, don't boring. feel, yeah, they don't yeah. feel tempted to buy those little things that otherwise they wouldn't have done. What other tips and tricks do you have for people to break a sugar addiction? Sure. Like I said before, with the, with the exercising, don't set yourself up for failure because that's going to put you into an even worse mood. Yeah. And I say this, don't like wake up tomorrow and be like, I'm not going to eat any sugar anymore. That's it. Today is my last day. It's not going to work. Yeah. Okay. 
tiny baby attainable steps. Tomorrow be like, you know what? These Oreos I've been eating every day, the refined sugar, it's really not doing anything for me. It's making me bloat, it's making me groggy. Maybe I just don't eat Oreos anymore. I can have any other form of sugar. If, I, if I'm used to having like cake after a meal, I'm still gonna have that. Let me just put away the Oreo. After like a, a while, you're gonna be like, you know what? Maybe that cake I have after dinner, I can maybe skip two nights out of, you know, the week. Yeah. Or bump it up to three nights. My point is gradual, small, attainable steps. The ultimate goal would be obviously to not eat refined sugars anymore. But say that's something you're going to achieve in the future. Right now, today, I'm going to take a tiny step. Tiny something I cannot fail at. That really makes a world of difference because you can sacrifice an Oreo for a day. You know, no, anybody can do that as long as they can have their other sugars. It, that's why tiny steps matter. And I say that related to exercise. I say that in relation to meditation. If you promise yourself you're going to meditate every day, don't do that. Don't start out like that. Be like, I'm just going to do like a minute, maybe twice a week, then bump it up to three times a week. Then four. So it's the same thing with sugar, small baby steps. And after a while, once you actually physically feel the change in your body, you're not going to want to consume it anymore. Once I stopped like drinking Coke, I just I feel physically ill when I drink Coke now. It's yeah. gonna you're gonna become adverse to the taste of it, to the sensation and feeling you get of it. You will eventually. Everything is about habits, right? We develop habits, so let's let's develop healthy ones. But my point is small attainable baby steps. Absolutely. That's all. Yeah, no, that that is so true because you uh, like you said, you want to set yourself up for success. And even with exercise, that's what happens, right? To most of us, beginning of the year, the gyms are full, everybody's on the treadmill, working out. And by February, it's empty, because yeah. you burnt yourself off. So maybe just starting to dance, maybe just beginning to like you said, you know, just remove one of your refined sugars in in your day that you consume and slowly beginning to develop new habits. This is really about not worrying about breaking fully the old habits, but developing new habits in a teeny tiny steps. And then they, because they make you feel good every time you sweat after a Zumba or after right. you go to the gym, it just makes you feel so energized and so accomplished that right. you want to get that feeling again. Yeah. And after yeah. some time, it just becomes an addiction, a new addiction, but a good addiction that gives you rewards. So the sugar is the other part. Is there anything else? Uh, is there how, What is the impact of sleep in how you feel? Is that something that you've seen that most of these folks get disrupted? Because most people with depression actually sleep, but they don't get feel rested. What happens right. to the high-functioning depressive person? So people with... Um Depression either sleep too much or can't sleep at all mm -hmm. or have um, interrupted sleep. I see that a lot. So we all know sleep is important. I personally get 10 hours of sleep a night, 10 hours. Like I, if it's an hour less, I can't function the next day. And that's okay for me. But uh, my point is sleep is very, very important. So people who are depressed are struggling with 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 sleep problems. Sure. Um, having good sleep hygiene is really, really important. I see people who lay in bed every day, all day, 
they do all their work there, they eat there. So it comes to that time and they want to sleep the cans because they've associated the bed with, you know, all this with working and eating and they don't associate it with the brain doesn't associate it with sleep. So obviously you can't fall asleep, you know, in that in that kind of scenario. Or they consume a heavy, heavy meal before bed, can't sleep, they're, you know, struggling with indigestion. Um, or I see a lot of people who find the time at bedtime to think about everything that's wrong in their lives or think about everything they have to do. And that's when the meditation practice will come in handy. You learn to block out all those thoughts at bedtime. Bedtime is not the time for you to be obsessing about the future or the past or like yeah. what you have to do. Time for you to restore <laughs> and get, you know, restore yourself for all the things you have to do the next day. So that's, that's where the, the, um, what should we call it? The, the meditation yes. practice really comes in hand, right? And I always like, we, I don't want to talk about medications, but if you need it, you need it. Don't, if you're really not getting any sleep at all, if you're, you're yeah. dragging yourself throughout the work day, you need help and that's okay. I, again, I see a lot of patients who get like three hours of sleep a night and then have to go to work the next day or their parents to small children and they're just going about their day struggling every single day. And when I do offer them sleep medication, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. It's okay. If you need it, you need it. First, try lifestyle modifications. Practice good sleep hygiene. Practice getting enough exercise because sometimes that physically tires you and you're able to, you know, sleep better. If all of that fails and you need an extra push, that's okay. <laughs> that's what I got to say. And yeah. um, a lot of people also have this thing where they, they feel like during the day they don't get much time to themselves. So they use the time at bedtime yes. to watch a bunch of movies or yes. have their me time. And that cuts into their sleep. That's never a good idea. <laughs> never. If you want to have me time, try, you know, waking up an hour earlier in the morning after you've had a full night's rest. If you need to, like, watch a movie or read a book or do something for you, let that be during the day, not right <laughs> before sleep. That's yeah. a really bad idea. Do not sacrifice sleep for anything. Anything. I'm telling you. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the newer problem, I don't know if you've experienced it with your patients, but what I find is, is kids are at home, husband is home, the spouse or in the <coughs> case of a guy, the wife is at home, everybody's working from home or studying from home. So the bedroom becomes somebody's office space, you know, and that is truly very disruptive. And in fact, quite destructive for your uh, sleep ritual. So have you experienced that? Is Are there any suggestions you have for that? Yeah, I actually wrote an article about this right when the pandemic <laughs> came out, um, telling people how to, you know, navigate to working from home. Pick one spot in the house, preferably not inside the bedroom. Associate that one spot with work. That's it. Don't be working anywhere else because you don't want your brain to think the entire apartment is for work or the entire house is for work. One small space. All you need really is a little desk, right? Only work there. That way your brain, when it sees that, it means it has to be on. It needs to be functional. It's work time. But everywhere else in the house should be associated with relaxation and sleep. If you can avoid the bedroom, I know especially in like New York City homes, I used to live in New York, they're very tiny. So sometimes the bedroom is the kitchen, is the, is the office, and it gets a little bit harder to, um, harder to, you know, really different, you know, separate the pieces. But uh, even in a small cramped space, if you pick a tiny part of the apartment to associate with work, then when you go into bed, you don't still feel like you're on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. The other 
part that's very important. The bed as such should be really what, like they say, it's either for sleep or sex, but not to be mm -hmm. used for anything else. And again, you're using that a little small spot in your apartment or in your little studio, which is really for work. And if it can be screened off, it's even better so that you're not looking at the computer yeah. when you're going to bed. Um, and I, I think the other part of it, um, the very important point that you mentioned is watching the movie. We all know, especially if you have kids at home, you don't get them to watch a horror film and then go to bed and expect them to go to right. bed. But for us, watching the news is like most of the times is horrifying. Mm -hmm. And then we're trying right. to go to bed and it triggers off those negative thoughts or scary thoughts or scary events that have happened. And this is something that I've experienced too, where, you know, you day has been stressed and you're rerunning and you're thinking, oh, I could have done this better or should I be, uh, how do I tackle this tomorrow are there any specific tips when the mind is racing like that to help yourself besides taking a breath or trying to meditate or do something right before bedtime is there anything else that you find would be useful as a tool for a patient so if that does happen to you while you're in bed get out of bed because ah. then forever you're gonna when you go into bed your brain is gonna start you know overdrive again get out of bed immediately go outside take a walk around calm your brain down before you go back into bed so every time your brain sees the bed it associates it with rest with sleep mm. does that yeah. make sense yes absolutely so you're really retraining and it, it, it's very important right these are all cues for the body so it, like hey if you're gonna start jabbering we're out we're not going to yeah. rest. We're going to start walking and you finish your jab and then I'll come back. It's a, that's a nice way to um, deal with that. Um, any other, um, let's say how long, when let's say this person has started exercising, is removing sugar, trying to interrupt their negative thoughts, has a good bedtime ritual, um, gets put on a, whatever, a mild antidepressant. How long do, do you see... It takes, in, you know, most people with severe depression, when they come, like when there's an event and they get depressed, like there's grief, but then it goes on to becoming depression. I usually see about six months to one year, they're back to normal and they can be weaned off the antidepressant. And a person who's high functioning, what would you say is the timeline that they can anticipate that they begin to feel better um, with all these interventions? It's a little harder. First of all, I should make a disclaimer that high functioning depression is not a DSM term. Correct. Term that I noticed that. It will, yeah, it will be in the future. I, I think in the next DSM six or seven or something, they will add something like this. But right now it's not. And it's a term I like to use a lot. It is very hard to treat. Very hard to treat. And you got to be patient with yourself. Unfortunately, with any mental health condition, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of figuring it out, figuring out the right medication, figuring out the right lifestyle. And that d does take time. And a lot of people give up in the, in, the, in the middle because they're like, what is this? Like, I'm doing all of this. I'm still, I'm still not feeling better. And it's very easy to give up. Be patient with yourself. These things take a lot of time. But I promise you, once you do consistently work on your mental health every single day, you will reach that point where you're finally at peace. And I should, I'm not going to say like ecstatic and happy, but at peace and no longer depressed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, I think most people just want to feel normal, feel like they yeah. have a purpose in life. They feel like they belong, feel like they are uh, worthy 
you know, a lot of times when you feel worthless, the depressed and hopeless, like I used to do a lot of um, jail medicine before, mm -hmm. and I see young kids, right? M many of them um, use alcohol or drugs to right. get to that feel good spot. Because that's the other yeah. last part that I know. Thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. But I just want to ask you this. Where does, like this person, a lot of depressed patients and patients with anxiety tend to uh, alter their mood with substances, you know, whether it be marijuana or alcohol or CBD. Now they start with CBD and they start, you know, um, self-treating. Is this something that you see with a high-functioning depression too? Do they tend to go towards alcohol and what does that do for them? Yes, it's definitely, I see it with um, cocaine because they're exhausted throughout the day and sometimes they, they just, they can't, they, you, you stop acting at one point, right? You can't act 24-7. I see a lot of that. I see a lot of marijuana to help the thoughts and anxiety and alcohol. All of those, yes, they do temporarily fix your mood. They temporarily numb you out. They temporarily get to where you want to, you know, you know, get or like finish a task or what, whatever it is, temporarily. But the, the key word here is temporarily. It's not a long-term solution. And people know that. But like I said before, people don't have mental health literacy. They don't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. They say, okay, if I drink alcohol, I'll feel better. So that, that's what I'm going to do. They don't know that they have other options they can seek help that this is the way they're feeling in fact is depression it's a biological illness it's, they can feel better and they don't have to resort to drugs and alcohol so it all goes back to my point how we need to increase awareness a person who's like for example an alcoholic if they knew they had other options if they knew could recognize what they're feeling in themselves they might have not resorted to a drug they might have instead gone to therapy they might have instead gone to a psychiatrist took yeah. you know a, a medication so my whole point is that yes we need to raise awareness we need to help people recognize the signs and symptoms in themselves because yeah. things like drugs are just a temporary fix. And I don't blame those people. When you're feeling bad, you do everything you can to make yourself feel yes. better. No. You know, it, it's such a dark place that you just want to, you just want to stop the pain. I don't blame anybody who resorts to drugs as a way to cope, but I just think those people don't know any better. And it's, you know, my responsibility as a psychiatrist to increase awareness and let them know, hey, I know that it feels good to drink alcohol when you're really stressed, but here's all these other options and give them a shot. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's exactly what it is about, because I think in, in the long run, life is very short. If you really look mm -hmm. at it, 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 and if your life feels is very long, and I'm hearing more and more of the younger generation, which is very heartbreaking. It's like, oh, I don't want to live past 30. And it's almost like you're a baby, yeah. you're 16 now, but they're feeling the burden of life. They're seeing the life around them. What they see is a, it's a very uh, burdensome existence. It's their, that's their perception, and that needs to shift. We need to start talking to these kids much earlier, talking to young adults much earlier and giving them that space and letting them understand that feeling not okay is okay. And that's exactly, that, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not something to hide from. It's okay to start and it's okay to start therapy very early because the way I see it, I mean, having as many decades as I have in this world, I feel like the, my world has changed around me. And mm -hmm. 
it's very difficult for me to keep adapting and be the same person. I have to adapt to this new world and the new people I see. There's so much more like most of us are on social media. So many more people are rude to us, which they would never do when they see us face to face, right? And there's so much more insults we are experiencing as human beings. And there's only so much our mind can take. But if you're not able to feel okay, then it's okay to seek some help and get you back to that feeling to say, hey, there are certain things I'm going to ignore, certain things I'm going to enjoy. This is my life. And I think um, getting to that point uh, is uh, is so crucial from a very um, young age. Um, Yeah. And is there anything else that we, uh, you, you feel like should have been discussed that we, we didn't bring it up at all? I think we covered a lot. Um, I, I hope you guys learned something. Um, I just want to say that you are not alone. If you identified with anything we just talked about today, trust me, you're not alone. There's so many people that to the world, they seem like they have it all. They're on top of the world. They're yep. thriving. They have, you know, a great career, a gorgeous family. Even those people, those people are not immune. Those people can get depression too. And it's, I've seen him seeing it so much more. So my point is, do, you, you're not alone. Yeah, people don't talk about this like nobody people don't really like go to a party and you know when they meet other people and be like oh you know start talking about like their depression and everything they're going through they talk about the good things they talk about their wonderful career and how much money they made and their new car and so nobody talks about this so it makes you feel like you're the only one who's struggling but you're not and I think (laughs) the social media has actually made it even worse where everybody looks happy everybody looks perfect and everybody exactly. has everything that you don't have. And um, every time, I, I think in the last year, there must have been three influencers. They call them influencers. Young kids who just have this huge following just die. And yeah. it's mind-blowing how this can happen. Um, right. So we're, we're really missing a huge um, piece of our own self-awareness so i'm so happy that you were able to bring this to our audience as we come to the end of this podcast what dr yalda safai gave towards the end are tools you can use and not feel helpless in this journey back to health exercise nutrition and thoughts were the broad categories we spoke about on thoughts she wanted to bring up the saying Watch your thoughts as they do become your words and watch your words as they become your actions and watch your actions as they become your habits and for sure watch your habits as they do become your destiny. So your thoughts become your reality and if you want to change your reality, you have to begin by reframing your thoughts. Now you might ask, why not take a medication and call it a day? Because I would invite you to ask this question. Why is that some people develop depression? It is because depression itself is caused by various insults. It's not like these medications were to be in your blood and it is not because you have depression because of a deficiency of these medications. Our job is to live our optimal life. What can you do for yourself should always be a question. Never leave your health, mental or physical, solely as a responsibility of a system, an individual, be it your doctor or your therapist. Always strive to ask, what can 
I do for myself to promote health and well-being in me. As Dr. Yalda mentioned, the very first step was to exercise. But why? Here's the data. 30% of the folks do not get relief from medications alone. They may feel a little better, but sometimes they see they feel flat. That is, they don't feel happiness, they don't feel any sadness. Isn't that why we went to get treatment to begin with in the first place? This complete lack of pleasure and the medication is now gotten to a point where you have complete lack of emotion. So how can you help yourself so that you can rely less on the medication and optimize the rest of your body to support your mental health? One is exercise. Several studies have shown that they are as effective as medications. In fact, what I would invite you to do is also get your genetic testing done. I do this in my practice and I'm able to find out if a person is genetically prone to depression. If they are, my next thought is how can I help them bypass their genetics? Yes, you can bypass your genetics. First, you need to know how you're wired and second, what steps you can take in order to bypass it. Exercise and nutrition are two ways we can do it, but it can be personalized. With exercise, it can be aerobic like running, cycling, walking, power walking, walking through nature, or it can be anaerobic like weightlifting. Walking and light therapy where you have bright light during the day and cognitive behavioral therapy all make depression stay at bay. I think the bigger challenge is getting over that hump of anhedonia to do anything meaningful. This is where medications help and create the feeling that you're able to go out and exercise. So when you start off, you may need medications, but eventually you want to support and get to a goal where maybe you could minimize your medications or even get off of them. The other very important aspect I would say is create a community to support you. Here's an analogy I'd like to leave you with. If you're drowning, you would thrash around and call out for help because it is a moment of panic. Like what they say, a come to Jesus moment. Any acute illness in our life, we always draw attention, we always seek out help. Acute depression can be one of those where you do seek out help, but what we try to bring out in this podcast is high-functioning depression is almost like we are drowning in slow motion that we're not aware we're drowning and we may seek help a little too late. We do not want you to be that deep when there is no one to hear you scream. I hope this podcast has helped you realize how to identify that depressed feeling deep inside where you have the lack of pleasure and also the feeling of exhaustion and you're not pushing it under the rug because culturally you feel you cannot speak about it. I will end with this. If there is not something you do on a daily basis to support your health like exercise or eating nourishing meals or sleeping well or even hanging around with people who are positive, then seeking a solution in a pill can be very disappointing. This is also the awareness we need. Understand when we need help, what help we need, and how to stay involved in our own health journey. 
back to Dr. Yalda Safai and how we can get to contact her. And uh, thank you so much. And if somebody has to, would like to find out more about you and the things that you write about, where do they go? Um, you can go on my website, yaldasafaimd.com. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. So, and thank do you, you have a social media, a media handle? Yeah. Yeah. It's yaldasafaimd. Got it. Thank you very much. I thank really you. appreciate thank your you time. So much. Thanks for having me. This is great. I hope this information was useful and practical for you. As always, a reminder to subscribe and also share the link with someone who you believe will benefit from it. And I end with this reminder. Health is intuitive and it's your business. Disease is what you pay for. And that is the business of medicine.